From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you pensions bank rolling startups, Robinhood tries again at a savings account, and the UK just rolled out a payment card made from solid gold worth $23,000. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we get into that, you may have heard by now that we've made a documentary. 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech is now available to watch for free at 11years.film. In just 60 minutes, you'll learn how the financial crisis caused a reform in UK regulation that encouraged competition, why UK Fintech is so attractive to VC firms and angel investors, what future challenges and opportunities exist for UK Fintech, and so much more. So check it out now at 11years.film and share it with your network using the hashtag 11years. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 367 of Fintech Insider. We are back in the studio in London following David's adventures in New York last week. And today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Adam Davis. So how are you doing today, Adam? I'm very well. This is my first pod in the new studio. It's looking lovely. <laughs> walls are looking a bit bare, but the lights are nice. You can't really put things on the walls, Adam. It kind of defeats the point of having a soundproof room. This is true. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> You've obviously been involved in the design of this. Well, um, yeah, this isn't, this isn't my first radio. <laughs> um, as always, we are not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests, all making new show debuts. So first up, we have Josh Bottomley, Global Head of Digital at HSBC. How are you today, Josh? I'm doing well, Sarah. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. We're also joined by David McHenry, who is the Head of Global Treasury and Payments Advisory, EMEA, at Silicon Valley Bank. Thank you for joining us, David. Great to be here. Thanks. And last, by no means least, we have Mark Walker, co-founder and COO of the Fintech Power 50. Great to have you with us today, Mark. Absolute pleasure to be here. So let's get started. First story today comes from The Times, and it's that pension cash could bankroll startups. So up to 5% of private sector retirement pots could be invested in venture capital funds under plans being considered by the government and the pensions industry. The suggestion comes from the state-owned British business bank, BBB, that's not a tongue twister at all, and a group of the biggest providers of defined contribution schemes, which would unlock billions for promising startups, but could potentially put savings at risk. This suggestion comes from a report that was published by the BBB and Oliver Wyman, the 5% figure is understood to have been suggested as appropriate for balancing the risk of backing young companies, many of which fail, but with the upside that if they go on to succeed, there would be a huge increase in returns. They reckon that it's especially beneficial for younger savers. So I think that this has been reported very differently in many different news sources. Um, I would be very keen to hear takes on, first of all, the story, and then second of all, maybe the Times' take on it versus some of the others out there. Take on the story, if you look at it, I suppose, objectively, is that I suppose if you add up the risk profiles in terms of how pension funds and and other funds are distributed, this effectively almost just adds another level to the risk. And I can understand the kind of the cap at 5%. But I do, I suppose, stressing some some form of caution, you have to think about the consequences of this actually happening, how many startups actually make it, what startups are going to be invested into by these funds. And just, I suppose, the viability, people's knowledge of the startup, uh, fintech startup, the startup industry, I suppose, outside maybe of London and some of the some of the other, I suppose, tech-centric areas of the UK is still pretty nascent. I would be slightly concerned, slightly concerned that people might enter into this without actually knowing what they're doing. 
Yeah, I think um, the, the bit that you were saying about how it has been represented differently in different areas, I think very much in the business community, sort of in London, it was portrayed as a very positive thing and about, yay, more money available for startups and to really support things. I think if you look at how it's been presented with more national media outlets, it's been much more on the, look how silly the government are being with all your pension savings. It's kind of like it's a really interesting sort of balance between the two. And as you're saying, I think the, the cap of the 5% is obviously in there to, to sort of protect some people. It's going to be quite interesting to see how it applies to the people that are holding the pensions. I think for the more, it's not being ageist, but I think for people of a certain age, I think the risk appetite is very, very low. Whereas I think maybe for a, a younger population, there is a little bit more appetite for risk. Calculated risk, obviously, but not sort of uh, as bad as the, uh, the the older generation are probably looking at it. I think what's been missed in a lot of reporting as well is that this is a report which has suggestions in it. It's not the government mm. has not decided they're just going to do this tomorrow. It's kind of... More government bashing. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, I mean, yeah, because we haven't done that. We still have a government at the moment, but we're recording this on Thursday, so who knows what it'll be like by Monday when this goes out. The point is that it is, it is not written in stone it's not a five percent cap it's not definitely for everybody it's you know it, it's just a suggestion um so i think it's more about the concept i suppose and i think that's that's right i mean let's there are two aspects here one is it is good that more people get access to more investment opportunities and diversification is a good thing we all believe and all the evidence that a portfolio that is more broadly diversified is good and if this makes it more democratic it means that some of these VCTs are available to a broader part of community who don't often see them. That's great. But the other side is, and we talked a little bit about this, is the risk management. So we do, I and mean, certainly for HSBC, we take very seriously our ability with customers that actually they invest safely and for the long term. But I don't think we should not make things available simply because it means we have a responsibility to help people do that. I think actually that both sides are positive. It's absolutely right on the diversification. And I think one of the big drivers with all of this is that you are seeing public pensions that are starting to put more money into VC funds that are being managed. It's not just investing in one single company. That's going into a full fund that's investing across a, a whole boatload of different companies and looking for success there. But you're also seeing this kind of change in investments now where so much value is being created prior to IPO in the private market. And so whether it's pensions or whether it's more you or I with our, our own investments looking at unlocking some of that value where we're not getting that in the market, mm-hmm. there's more of this push to pu- have access to those pre-IPO. And that's where the market's been pushing a lot of people. And I think um, what, what kind of gets missed out a lot, and I have this, I say this about pensions all the time, is but I would bet money on the fact that an awful lot of people don't actually know their pensions are investments to start with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're coming out on the time saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's super risky. They want to put it in this, you know, VC fund where you might make a loss. You might actually make a loss on any pension anyway. But mm-hmm. that's kind Absolutely. of how it works. So I think this kind of reporting can be a little bit dangerous as well, because actually what we could do is getting people to better understand what their pension is and then how it works, and then, as Josh says, give them the option to to move things around if they have a different risk appetite. But just going straight in with with this could be, you know, a little misleading, I think. Well, I would love to see sort of a slant on this, which is, you know, you can invest into new fintechs, new startups across industry, but with a specific lens or niche on it. So if you're talking about, let's say, ethical investing, actually, this could be a real way to generate new companies, let's say, in sustainability or, or whatever it might be, but something that actually do, does good, if you like, and start actually redistributing some funds from pensions into those kind of those kind of funds that would be really really interesting but conversely I, I sort of think that the one thing that I would say that might happen if you do this at the moment there isn't 
well, there is a pressure to make a profit, but I suppose that's the one the one thing on, um, on technology companies at the moment who are starting up. Profits may be seven-year cycles. You don't have to immediately realise realize those benefits. There's more money going in, and it's potentially irregulated. Does that just not continue that trend? And is that trend a positive behaviour or not? Now, I was going to say, actually, I was going to make a slightly different point. I mean, one of the other positives around this, and particularly with VCTs, is getting more of the population to take an interest in a particular business and potentially understand it, as long as it's within a, again, a broader portfolio, it's not, it's not the whole area, you actually could see this as a really positive way of getting people to understand how business works. We yeah. certainly know that in Asia, we get a lot broader set of the population who are investing, whether in shares actively, than generally happens in mm-hmm. in Europe. And actually showing people, you know, part of the whole economy that we have, there's a, there's a positive aspect to that side as well. Well, we will come on to um, something to do with uh, getting more people involved in investing slightly later on. But first, our next story, we've taken it from the FT, but it was very widely reported, is that HSBC plans first direct relaunch to compete with digital rivals. So HSBC is planning an overhaul of its first direct brand to attract younger customers and compete with fast-growing new digital rivals such as Monzo. The bank will make a string of changes over the next 12 months to improve its services, including new features and become more accessible to a wider population, according to Joe Gordon, First Direct's chief executive. First Direct will also, for the first time, allow customers with limited credit histories to open accounts and provide services to help them improve those records. So first of all, Josh, is that all accurate? Yeah, it is. <laughs> because, because sometimes we have people on and they go, actually, no, that was misreported. So, okay, that's all that. No, it's, it's, it's great. It's exciting. And it's a really, it's a really nice time. And the reality, the reason now is the time that we can sort of make the announcement is, for a while, lots of banks, including us, is getting some of the basic experiences to work on your mobile phone, the ability to open an account to do some of the basic services has been our focus. And you've got to do that, obviously, protecting people against cybersecurity with some of the other rules. And we're largely through that. So now... We're actually at a time where we can actually say what on top of that can we go and build. And some of that, as Joe says here, is around changing the data that we assess credit with because you get all there are all sorts of data supplies that weren't there. Some of it's just the messaging. Um, there's a really good example we've got now of people who feel good because you've had your bought your cup of coffee. Well, how do we make people feel good for saving the money they had on the cup of coffee? Not that it's boring and worthy, but actually giving people some sort of feedback mechanism for that. Or the other big area is giving people much more control over what messages and how they want the bank. Because what we know from the research is that some customers basically want the bank to leave them alone. I just want the payment to work and let me live my life. And other customers say, no, I'd like a lot more tips from the bank if I think I can save money by buying it somewhere else or doing something differently. And again, what this will start to do is give us a lot more flexibility. And certainly, the research would suggest that some of these younger and millennial customers are happier with a much more active type of conversation and engagement than mm-hmm. some of our more traditional customers. So, so just to be clear, it'll be first direct, it'll maintain the first direct brand. So it's not a, another, because some of the other the, the incumbent banks have launched digital ch- uh, brands and challenger brands, but they've got another name to them. This will stay first direct. This is definitely first direct, and I okay. can't resist. I've got to do one little pitch. We want to be the best bank. If you want to be digital only, we want you to bank with us. And then if you need to go and talk to someone through a live chat to a contact center or you want to go and meet a real person, we can offer you that as well. So we don't need to do that as a separate brand. Okay. Some people have said, actually, that First Direct was possibly the first fintech challenger bank. Oh, it's been widely reported, yeah. hasn't it? First branch list. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Branch list side, which obviously, technically, you know, it's a grey area, let's say. Okay. But 
I remember back in the day when it was Midland Bank, which is when I first got my first account, age 15, when they came into school and offered me a, a Griffin bag and a uh, file of facts to take out an account, which was amazing. And then they sort of then remember morphing it into sort of First Direct and it being quite cool at the time to sort of start being able to not have to go to the branch and having to ring up. And when you sort of like, I didn't really think about it until probably, you know, when the story broke and you sort of like put yourself back sort of 10, 15, 20 years and you think, Oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. You know, why, why have they never been reported as anything as a challenger until now? I'm going to be really interesting to see how the rebrand or the repositioning is actually going to go because, you know, you obviously were branchless at the start. So you can't sort of say, oh, yeah, now we haven't got branches. We're now digital and you can ring us. You could always ring you. What is the actual rebrand going to focus on, do you think? Are you bringing back the platypus? Because I really <laughs> like the platypus. That's all I'm saying. I'm not sure. And Mark, I hope you still got your account. But, the, um, <laughs> coming, but um, you know, coming back, I think what's going to be really different, and, and I'm not saying we're going to be unique on this, but it's actually the experience of what banking is. Banking has always been, I'm going to call it quite episodic. So yeah, it was physically a branch. But even on first start when it started, it was a phone that you would occasionally phone the branch. Occasionally you go to your app. It's now becoming much more broad in our life. And I'll give you a good example that we're sort of talking about. And this would actually require an FCA sandbox. But investing for your retirement is actually quite a big deal. And people avoid the conversation and they don't want to get the paperwork. But there are a lot of people now who, for example, are earning enough that covers more than their monthly savings, but they're not doing anything with the excess. It's just sitting in today's interest rates, earning nothing in an account. Well, we could give you a no regrets move that why don't you move, could be just 200 pounds, and you move it into some form of gradual savings account and you start to feel you're doing that. That sort of decision is a very different type of experience. Or similarly, do you want the notification that your paycheck has come into your account and you have control of whether that happens How much messages do you want if there's a risk of fraud? Some people want to know every time there's the slightest risk, and some people only want to know if it's there. So I think this experience is really going to be quite different. It's going to be much more pervasive in different aspects of your life, but also much more under your control as the customer of how much or how little you want of that. What will be interesting to see as well is because the first directors for a long time topped the um, MPS charts, the customer service charts. It's it's always been, you know, it always comes out the top. I think that might be to do with having the call centres up north, but, you know, we won't go into that again today. <laughs> Always very friendly on the phone, but that my point being, the serious point being, that they, they have a very, the brand has a very good reputation of being very good at customer service, and it will be important, I imagine, to maintain that as you move to digital and away from the very friendly person on the end of the telephone. Uh-huh. Sorry, David, did you want to jump in? Oh, no, and when I, what I find really interesting about this is the different approaches that the incumbent banks are taking around these ch- kind of challenger brands that they have, where it's kind of this retrenching and relaunching from the first direct side, but also kind of the new brands that are spinning up, whether it's something like Marcus or Bo, or is it uh, enabling more kind of the the incumbent legacy tech that's within the bank that they're taking the step forward with that, or going down the acquisition route and then crossing their fingers that they're not going to screw that up. And I think those are all kind of interesting approaches that all the banks are taking. And what's going to pan on in the future is going to be, I think, really cool to watch. There's been a couple of influences on that. I think if you look at obviously the rise of fintechs at the moment and the rise of new neo challenges is obviously one. I think the technology has obviously enabled customers' expectations to shift. And we talk a lot, we do a lot of research um, on retail customers. And the one thing that's continually creeping out now and now has actually become quite a phenomenon is this concept of mental accounting. So actually where customers are, because of everything they can do now and because of some of the integrations that the neo banks have, they're starting to think further around where they're putting their money. 
And so you need to have the facilitation to be able to help customers do that. Uh, and it is all around intelligent services and being able to sweep and being able to be predictive and integrating an element of nice behavioral economics. I think I bring that up just about in every <laughs> podcast. We're a bit of a fan. Some people trounce it, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with it. Even to the point where now you're not even going under the underlying account as in the money coming in because you can sweep, but you now want to be in addition to, you know, 12 million people are now multi-banked in the UK generally with a challenger. So I think if you add up all those factors, now is, now is definitely the time to do it. And obviously given where First Direct are, especially within the customer service charts, you've got a great platform to to crash it. Well, talking of sweeping, our next story is that Robinhood has made a second attempt at launching a high-yield account which is similar to a savings account offered by banks. So let me get this correct. I don't want to make a mistake here. We got this story from CNBC. So 10 months after the bungled, that's their words, not mine, announcement of a checking and savings product, which would offer zero fee checking and savings accounts with a 3% interest rate, Robinhood has unveiled a high yield cash management account. So this account will come with a 2.05% interest rate, which is lower than the original rate they were going to launch, um, include with that original product, which has been since been scrapped, but it is still more than 20 times higher than the national average for a savings account. So... A cash management account sweeps customers' money from a brokerage account into various FDIC, so um, that's the insured bank accounts, you're insured up to a certain amount. Because these firms deposit the money across multiple banks, the insurance is therefore higher than the standard $250,000, which is offered in the States per bank, per account rather. Oh, sorry, it's per bank. But in Robin Hood's case, accounts are insured up to $1.25 million. So basically, you could hold up to $1.25 million in your Robin Hood cash management account and be earning 2.05% on that total sum. I think that's correct. David is nodding at me, so I'm, yeah. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's I'm only come with the explanation because it's something that's not so common in the UK, so... The original product was scrapped, for those who don't know, because the regulators questioned the fact that the SIPC insurance, which was a, a, what they said they were going to insure the deposits on on the original product, actually can't be used for savings products and only be used for brokerage accounts. So the regulators stepped in pretty swiftly. Robinhood had to go back to the drawing board. And this is what they've come up with. So, thoughts? I was going to say, one of the interesting things I thought as you are reading it out is like, this sounds a bit complicated, doesn't it? Isn't fintech meant to be simplifying things and making things easier to understand and, and making a lot more sense? And again, as you said, it's probably more because it's it's more looking at the US sort of market rather than the UK market. I guess that kind of comes back to what is their plan, therefore, for this? Is, is this solely a, a North America focus? Is they going to try and crack that market first and then roll it out into other areas? What's their kind of strategy with this second bank and how does it differ to the first bank? that obviously didn't go quite so well. I love this. This is my use case. Like, come over to the UK. Where have they been? This is literally like my problem. So I, Can I get... we do this in the UK? That is the question. Because I don't know if the, you can do this legally. Like, I don't know what the structure well, is. Well, let me, let me just... Well, let's leave out the insurance and HSBC is one of the insured. But actually, I, let me just be clear. I had a bank account in the UK 20 years ago, which you just, just swept from my current account into the savings account when interest rates were higher and I got the interest rate. So there's But across nothing, multiple accounts, though. There's nothing, you know, the, the sweeping didn't work. The principle was there. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the economics of this are different right now because where yes. the interest rate is and the yields in the US, there's there. I think if you did this in the UK right now with our interest rates, you're either not going to make the offer oh, yeah. or it's, you're going to risk the sustainability. And actually, that's the, the reason this is interesting 
to people is it's particularly because we're in such a low interest rate environment and it but the, sorry, but the structure of the product is interesting to me as well because yes. I know an awful lot of people who've got as you were saying money in savings accounts that they have to keep pushing apart and pulling apart and pulling apart and then keeping a spreadsheet of where is all that money because the insurance is low so I'm just thinking that the attraction of being able to put up to four times the amount through one direct portal that then gets shared around banks actually would be quite appealing but you're, I think the use case the underlying use case for this is if you look at Hargreaves, and I don't know the stats, but I know, I think the CEO or one of the top guys at Hargreaves, Lansdowne, came out and said that they made the most of their money this year on money just sitting there in a Hargreaves, Lansdowne account, which has never been invested. And I personally move money into my investment account. I've got one with Hargreaves, Lansdowne and a couple of others. And then I um and ah, and I'm like, well, maybe I will invest this month, maybe not. Well, I'll wait for that dip. I'll wait for Boris to say something or Trump to say something, and maybe it will go up and down. And suddenly, you know, before you've thought about it, your money's been sitting there for two months. If I could get interest on that, which beats my savings account, completely understand in the UK it might not. I mean, how amazing would that product be? It would encourage me to put more and more money through that channel. You actually can through Hargreaves Lansdowne. They have a portal where you can put money in and then they spread it amongst accounts. You just have to choose them individually. And as long as you haven't got more than 85,000 in each of those banks, you can have. You go through Hargreaves Lansdowne, you spread it out and it can go into high interest yield. So you can have one in a five year, one in a one year, one in a... And there a lot of them are banks that don't have branches. Instant, instant. Yeah, yeah, I know. But the point being that the product exists is the instant that you're thinking. But my point being, we're not that far off. Sorry. Given given that we in the UK are a nation of non-savers at the moment, what percentage of the population is this going to be useful for? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I, I cannot, yeah. yeah. It might help us, but... We have to understand, and that is true, we do sit around this table sometimes and go, oh, well, we want this, this, and this, but we're actually in the minority. Not only do we understand these products, but also uh, most people who are on this podcast do have savings or do have money yes. that is available to invest. The interesting thing for me as well is that on the business model side, so why are Robinhood doing it? If you look at what's happened with Schwab, TD Ameritrade, and E-Trade, those are big, um, it, you know, self-management stock trading portals in the US, they've all announced recently that they're going to no longer charge individual trades, ETFs, options trades and stocks. So there goes Robinhood's USP. And at the same time, once it had launched that initial savings account in December, all of its competitors, so SoFi, Betterment, Wealthfront, went, oh, we'd better do something similar. And they've had products out there longer than Robinhood now, which are a similar idea. So from a market perspective, Robinhood have almost certainly done this because they do need to diversify because their USP is being clawed back by the incumbents and also all fintechs need to diversify at some point. Well, most of them do. Their fintech competitors are coming up the inside and doing the same thing. Mm. So what I want to know is, is, is that interest rate high enough? Or, because it's not unique, is the point. So is that interest rate high enough to capture the market they need and bring in those revenues they need? I think it's a big thing of keeping those funds and keeping that activity on their platform or any of those platforms where if they offer that, you're going to be trading and moving around assets, everything from stocks within Robinhood or crypto that they have within their platform. And as you trade out of those, keeping that cash there and being able to earn a rate on that, that's a good return. That's a competitive that you're not looking at moving out to one of those other competitors or a Marcus or something like that. That's a big thing to keep it there and then incite more trading and activity from there. So I think it's it's a big piece that to keep those eyes 
and that activity on their platform is huge. Yeah, it's just the idea of having the multiple product lines in one place, right? Yeah. So uh, almost to your point, Josh, earlier, if I don't want to do this with it, can I do that with it? And if I can do it all in one place with one logon, then I'm more likely to do it in one place with one logon and be that person who's got a spreadsheet with all the different accounts and how much is in them. The debit element to this is also quite interesting. I mean, obviously, Interchange drives that and, and the money you can get from Interchange in the in the States. I mean, personally, would I use, in my use case, would I use a debit card to actually unlock access to that? Probably not. But I think it's a um, probably most risk-free and easiest way that they could get to interchange. And it seems like that's kind of the... It gives a little bit more utility to those balances and what you're going to be doing. So if you have them in the account and you can, you know, Go use it. Use it at an ATM. I think they, they list that through the, the partner bank that they're using that they get access to 75,000 ATMs for free. Yes. That's actually a big deal. I mean that's one of the question marks when you think about the Monzos of the world who are moving over to the US. Over here in the UK, we're used to whatever card we're using going to pretty much any ATM, not having a surcharge. It's open. In the US, that's a much bigger walled garden where the banks that control their ATM networks charge fees to anybody else. So mm-hmm. these – kind of secondary cards that you might have in your wallet actually are walled out from that and will either have to have those organizations eat charges, which hurts profitability. And so having access to that many ATMs and giving that utility, I think that's an interesting thing where that card can be used a lot more. It's interesting, and that links to Mark's your earlier point, which is if it's a behavior – I mean, I've been worried about here about the economics and how do you make this work over time, but actually there's an interesting behavioral angle here. And mm-hmm. Does it start to get people behaving in different ways? And if it is – Linking your payments to some of those more occasional investments, that could be that could be interesting as well. Yeah. Well, the, the additional thing there, is, of course, is that it doesn't charge foreign transaction fees, which again is quite unusual as far as I understand it for US cards. I mean, we're mm-hmm. all we're all Monzo, Revolut, Starling happy over here. Yeah. We you know take our debit cards abroad now and assume we're not going to get charged fees. But again, particularly if you look at their target audience, that's going to be quite appealing. Mm-hmm. Talking of debit cards, this one kind of goes rather in the other direction. So the UK's Royal Mint just unveiled a $23,000 payment card made from solid gold. So again, we got this from CNBC, but you could get this pretty much all over any any major news outlet when it was announced. So Britain's Royal Mint has produced this card. The $23,000 or or £18,750 is actually how much you have to pay to buy the card in the first place, Mm. (laughs) just so long as we're all clear. The Royal Mint, if anybody doesn't know, is responsible for minting coins in the UK. So the card isn't contactless, but it comes with some other benefits. So it's being facilitated through MasterCard um, and also payments technology firm Accomplish Financial. So buyers of the luxury product will get access to a premium account called Raris, I'm guessing. I might be pronouncing that wrong, which offers zero foreign exchange transaction fees and additional MasterCard benefits, including dedicated concierge services. To be honest, I'm still not convinced it's worth the money, but maybe I'm missing something. Apparently, it's also not the only precious metal card out there. Apparently, this is, you know, the latest in a long line of um, these, I want to say, stunt cards. But Well, there were those iPhones, weren't they? Surrounded by diamonds that somebody the did sapphire for a while, screens, whatever they were yeah. called. And do that. I, I have to be a bit more serious. I mean, we've got, you know, we have a, a premium, we have a jade proposition, and I'm afraid I don't think anytime soon we're going to be creating, <laughs> we're not going to be creating gold payments cards. We're, I'm... I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to pause because I'm, I'm in danger of going giving a very serious answer about the moments of truth and actually the real service. <laughs> but I think you're just going to get bored, so I'll just be quiet for a bit. Yeah, that, yeah that, that, the point when you go into the market, you know, you 
just bought, I don't know, your lunch for six pounds and you get presented <laughs> with you know, your, your, your POS terminal and you got you bring out your £23,000 card and you just find it doesn't quite fit. You know what, it's funny because when, when um, there was a lot of news a few months back about metal cards, titanium cards of Apple's, Apple's card, um, N26 launched a card, Revolut had a metal card. And um, I did quite a lot of, of, of media about that at the time and I... I said at the time that I wonder if these will just become collector's items. Like, you know, you put them in a frame on the wall because because people who've had the or every Monzo card since the very first ever Mondo, you know, uh, prototype card, the one they use today, all the others they put in a frame and they put them on the wall. And I, I said at the time, I wonder if that's what these metal cards will become because they're actually quite annoying. They're quite cumbersome. They don't have contactless, some of them. Is this what this is? Do you put it in a glass case in your living room? This has got to be a statement. Oh, it's a statement and a half. <laughs> well, clearly, clearly yeah. but you throw it down. You throw it down at the end of the meal. Everyone looked at it. It was like, "Wow, you've got that card." But then you can't. I'd be shocked if anyone actually pays on it. Can I? Can I make it just as, again? Like this is a, not not a serious point at all. But like, um, so the first N twenty six metal cards bent when people put them in their wallets and sat on them. Eighteen karat gold is really soft. It's actually if you have mm-hmm. any gold jewelry, it's very soft. It dents mm-hmm. and it bends really easily. <laughs> so I'm wondering how practical this is. How's I it going to fit? I didn't realise that's what I was going to learn on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I'm full of useful information. Welcome to chemistry class. One of my metallurgy. Well, yeah, I've got quite, quite the penchant for jewelry. What can I say? I, I <laughs> would definitely say I'm, I'm completely over metal cards, collectible cards, and everything else. And you know, if, if I see another card, I'm probably going to start you know hanging people or something like that because it just feels like it's a needless gimmick. And, and this is obviously quite a good example of it. I, you know, there'll be a few people that will do it and there's a little cult following of it. It'll be interesting. It's a bit like um, the the courts card, you know, and that sort of stuff where you have like a, a private bank card and all this sort of stuff that you can throw around and impress all your mates with. I mean, uh, there doesn't seem to be any fundamental advantage of actually having it. You are actually buying this. It's not like the Amex Centurion card where you kind of qualify for it and it's given to you. And that's a very special thing to have those black cards and a pretty unique thing to get. So this, that you're buying it and it's, it's strange. What if you lose your card? Well, I was just about to say, <laughs> one of our producers has put a note in here that says, what's, what's the insurance on the card if you lose the card? Because if, what happens if you lose your card? Is it insured? Yeah. Like, yeah. how do you insure it? Who's going to underwrite that? Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, they must say it. It's, 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 it's part of the concierge services that Mastercard are providing. Yeah. Insurance. They'll just ship another is, one out. Is, to you. is the concierge actually somebody who carries it around in a briefcase, handcuffed yeah. to their wrist for you? You know, covered it, wearing Kevlar with a, a hip Right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we will be back very shortly. Let's hear from our sponsors. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Don't forget, we are hiring. If you want to turn your career up to 11 and join our team, head to 11fs.com forward slash careers to see our current vacancies. All right, let's get on with the show. Our next story is that Revolut is bidding for $1.5 billion in a debt and equity round. 
So again, we got this story from Finextra, but it has been all over the place. Revolut has apparently hired JP Morgan to oversee a 500 million equity raise and a $1 billion convertible loan in a move that would bring the total funding raised to almost $2 billion. The search for new capital comes just weeks after Revolut secured a global deal with Visa that would see the fintech move into 24 new markets and boost staff numbers to 3,500. Revolut is apparently aiming for a valuation of between 5 billion and 10 billion from the raise. My first question is, what is a convertible loan? Does anybody have any idea? So, thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. thoughts. (laughs) Uh, You raise capital and you're required once you raise the capital to convert it to shares or to equity. Yeah, I think that's it. So it's kind of like a promise to give you shares based on you give me money and I promise to give you shares when I <laughs> right, so because yeah. that makes sense, because then the more context that's been provided in this article is that Revolut would seek to raise the new loan on the basis that it would convert into shares in the event that the company had received a US banking license. But I wasn't sure that that was just if that was what a convertible loan was, or if that was yeah. the mm-hmm. Revolut kind of a buy, buy now, pay later sort of scheme is the way that I understand it to be. <laughs> Interesting. So. This is kind of, as far as I understand it, there was all the, there was a lot of rumours about Revolut raising sort of I think five hundred million from a supposedly SoftBank a while back, and that never really materialised. And I think there were other things going on with Revolut that perhaps put the dampers on that. Do they need this money? Is this the right thing for them to be doing? Revolut are actually a member of the fintech Power Fifty, and we've been working with them quite closely for the last year. I think they're on that sort of uh, hamster wheel now of investment and expansion and trying to get more users requires more injection of capital. And so it's kind of like you need to keep running and you keep need to be running faster and faster each time with each raise to actually get further. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of competition with them and, you know, people like N26 that are also raising big as well. So I think they're kind of like, uh, my opinion on this would be that they're looking to do this to really try and stay ahead and keep running faster than everybody else. If you look at the timing, and it's not necessarily linked to the deal that they've done with Visa, but they're going to enter X amount of new markets. Regulatory costs to enter X amount of new markets are very high. Uh, traditionally, they've played in Europe. In general, you can just about get around on EU laws. Um, there's, you know, Obviously, you need to register yourself in different countries. Uh, I think they did Lithuania, didn't they? Their banking licence? Uh, uh, originally, yes. But originally, and so on and so some, forth. Yeah, yes. but, um, <laughs> but I, think, I think they're going for 20-something Somebody can qualify that. But 20-something different countries who have all got generally different regulatory schemes, it's going to cost money. The other thing I think that's going to happen is clearly, I think I think you're right, Mike, they're, they're now committed to a get more customers, tell a story. Mm. The two challenges that they will face, like everybody else, one is you've, it's one thing to get customers, but to turn that into sustainable business with the customers yeah. is one opportunity. But the <clears> other really interesting piece is going to be the moments of truth in banking. So the analogy I use, and you were talking about InsureTech earlier, mm-hmm. Sarah, lots of people say my insurance cost is cheaper, but what, actually what we all care about is what happens when there's a claim, when something goes wrong, does it work? And I think what we're seeing is a lot more moments of truth. It's what happens when I'm trying to deal with bereavement and somebody else has got their account. What do I do with a parent who is not well and I don't have a power of attorney? Actually, I could be in generation rent. I might not get my first mortgage till I'm 40. I actually want to sit down and talk to someone. So the other really interesting piece that's going to play out, and I don't know the answer to this, whether it's, you know, it doesn't actually matter this, whether you are at an existing bank like we are or your Revolut, is it's really unclear what those operating costs are going to be in the future. And does banking look more like some of the media tech and you actually get some really different models? 
or is it going to start to look a bit more like WeWork? And we just don't know right now. And do you end up tying yourself in knots by doing this level of expansion? Because if you look at some of the larger banks, the incumbent banks, they've actually retrenched from certain markets and gone sort of, well, that one's too expensive. That one's got complicated regulatory, you know, into a complicated regulatory angle. And they're actually pulling back into core markets. So are they setting themselves up for more problems in future by going across so many markets, maybe? You can maybe argue that, but I think they're just in that part of their life cycle where they've shown success in what you might call their home markets here. And they've set this goal that, yes, they're going to expand. This raise is definitely all around that expansion, 20, 25 countries that they want to do. They've already started in the last, what, three, six months, a lot of the news around some of the senior and executive hires that they've made of really senior people from the industry that are coming in and some of the news that have come out that they're aiming at 35 100 people that they want to be hiring across the board, that's a huge amount of growth. That's transformational. And so they're, they're on that uptick. And this is what raises these types of funds are going to power that. I think the, the interesting thing when you started that is they've been a success in their home market. That's a really interesting uh, statement because I'm not sure that that is actually true. I mean, it depends how you define as success. Obviously, whether you define it as profitability, definitely not. If you define it as maximum number of users, probably not. It's, it's an interesting point of that. I think actually what you say is, is actually correct is that for their investors, they've been demonstrated user acquisition, therefore a success in their investors' eyes. The question, of course, is like what are those users doing? Is it regular? Is it frequent? Is it one-offs? And aside from all of that, you know, I, the valuations in my mind, and we're going to come on to some, some more valuations later on, are getting a little ridiculous. When you're a private company worth $10 billion, what do you do next? But there really is, and I was, I was talking with a few of the folks on, the, on, on our side about this from our, our lending side. And in, on the fintech side, the, the valuations are much different when you're thinking from a different tech company. When it's a fintech, these are capital growth things. So evaluation is much different when you're talking about this is meant for growing the platform, licensing, all this stuff. It's a completely different set of arithmetic in there. So you could say, yeah, the valuation ends up being five, ten billion in this, but it's way different saying that for a fintech than it is for maybe a different type of technology company. So what I would say is um, I think if you look at obviously a deal of the magnitude that they've signed with Visa, the press and publicity that they've got from it, that will in theory materially affect the valuation of the company. I say materially because obviously it's nothing set in stone. Now's the perfect time to raise from VCs to realise that valuation theoretically, which is probably, even if it's not linked to the visa expansion, which is probably is, I say probably without having any context, but it seems, sounds like it is. Now's the time to do it because now's the time, you know, you're riding the quest of the right wave. All right, well, let's watch that. Let's wait and see, because as with all these um, raise and valuation rumours, we never know until it actually comes true. So our next story is that Brazilian bank Newbank now has 15 million customers. So we got this from Reuters. Brazilian fintech startup has 15 million clients. The firm's chief executive said on last Friday, so that's two Fridays ago, if you're listening on Monday, a figure which underlines their rapid growth. So 10 million out of those 15 million are holders of the bank's credit card. Newbank also has started operating in Argentina and Mexico. Um, it's a household name in, in parts of Brazil. Well, most of Brazil, I imagine, actually, because of its free of charge credit card. The company has also branched out into offering digital savings accounts and personal loans. It's worth pointing out that for those who haven't heard us talk about Newbank before, Newbank's interest rates, um, when they say they are, you know, 30 to 40 percent lower than normal rates in the Brazilian market, normal rates in the Brazilian market are currently 300 percent. 
So when we think we're crying out for alternative <laughs> financial products um, in the UK, Europe, and even the US, because I know the US goes higher for interest rates, but even I don't think I've heard of 300% yet, it's hit the nail on the head in serving a need. And it's no wonder it's done so well. Obviously, Brazil is a very large market. But that is, is, is sort of phenomenal growth in, in six years, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, it's 300%, but then GDP per capita is about even a quarter of the UK. So it's relative-ish. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the ish is important there, I think. I think yeah. On the Brazilian market itself, I think if you look at it, if you define what a macro market economics are to a potential product, you've got the Sequoia way of defining, you know, what is a market that you should enter. The Brazilian market fits all the, ticks literally all the boxes, you know, 200 million customers, 60% penetration of mobile, 60% mobile banking, online banking. It's a phenomenal market, which is getting more and more crowded. And Newbank, I think, started at the right time. It was about six years ago. Yeah, six years old yeah. is that what it says here. Oh, well, there you go. Got it nailed on the head. I should uh, just said it. But, you know. Oh, did you? Yeah, but that's fine. You don't listen to me, Adam. That's fine. <laughs> um, they've, from a consumer perspective, in terms of customer numbers, it's been really the last two years because they, I think they, re- uh, they bought out a free account in 2018 and has seen their numbers surge off the back of it. But yeah, uh, amazing market, amazing market. I think it's always quite difficult to uh, to look at these headlines and it's a little bit clickbaity really because the numbers they use, it's like the same thing when you, you hear about sort of WeBank's, you know, number of users and this sort of stuff. The numbers look absolutely huge when you compare it to the UK's population and the size and number of banks here. When you actually start looking into it, the, the dynamics and the cultural sort of uh, things that are going on within the those markets are aiding this amazing growth but it's not starting at the same point that we'd see it as so while you you can't really compare sort of apples with apples as it were it's a very different sort of setup i do agree other- with that but i would also say that even the brazilian market this is still a significant success so i agree that you wouldn't necessarily you can't compare you know monzo's i think they're at three million now is it to, to new banks 15 million but i you know from what else we've seen in the brazilian market nobody else has quite managed this yet the other thing that's interesting about both Central America and, and South America is also banking and behaviors are changing. I mean, these are, these are markets that a lot was still in cash economy not that long ago. And I'm sure on the credit card business, a lot of this is actually for customers who were using cash payments and moving it there. What's interesting for us, we were in Brazil, we're now still very significant in Mexico. And it's very interesting for us, the digital experiences and journeys are quite different because we have a lot more times and more situations where people do want to look somebody in the eye or have the conversation on the phone Mm -hmm. before making a decision, not on your very low value credit card transactions. But it's interesting, we have to do the digital journeys somewhat differently in those markets. But it is changing fast, whether it's the apps and the the servicing, the market is moving. A lot of that, I think, is, from my understanding, is to do with trust as well. So somebody had told me an anecdote recently, this is about the African market, but I think it still applies, where they would have customers come into the branch, they would withdraw money, they would count the money, and they would hand it back to the teller because they wanted to check that the teller was A, trustworthy, and B, that their money was all there. If you're looking at a market like that, and I think that Latin America has, has similar issues with trusting, you know, large organizations and, and big corporations, et cetera, et cetera. Not only have you got to make sure that as a new brand, you're establishing trust, but on top of that, you're a digital brand. So kind of the, the trust gap feels almost even even larger, I suppose, to overcome. To, to your point, Josh, you know, people coming in and wanting to be on the phone and wanting to see a person. That's to do with reassurance, surely. Yeah, no, I, think, I think that's right. And it's changing. And we'll, and we'll have to see. We'll have to watch. I mean, we talk a lot about China and people's behavior and going different ways. I actually think South America, Central America is another place where behaviors are changing. And just because the, they are catching up doesn't mean they end up in the same place. They could, it could end up in a slightly different direction, like, like you're saying. 
in saying that sort of thing as well, it's with a lot of these sort of stories, I always find myself wanting more information, more, more data sort of thing. It's like, well, that's a great growth rate. Are they taking customers away from the incumbent banks or are they bringing on a new range of people, as you're sort of saying, that have chosen a different behaviour? It would be really nice to know where that growth is coming from. Is it being taken from the existing players? Yeah, because you kind of look at how they grew up of being actually like a credit card and getting people to use that card so it's secondary to your, your current account or your checking account, then adding in those services and are they getting those people to migrate over and use that as their core banking application and their financial institution? The thing is, I can't even get those numbers on the UK market as to who's using what as a primary account (laughs) and uh, how many accounts each people have. So, you know, if anybody does have those numbers in the Brazilian market, I would love to see them. (laughs) Moving on to our next story, this is that True Balance continues its Indian takeover following a funding round. So this story comes from TechCrunch. So True Balance is a South Korean startup that began as a tool to help users easily find their mobile balance or to top up a prepaid mobile credit. Today, it serves as a digital wallet app that helps users pay their mobile and electricity bills and offers credit to customers so that they can pay later for digital purchases. And this week, it has raised $23 million in a Series C financing round from seven Korean investors in order to reach more first-time users in India. So the startup says it now has over 60 million registered users in India, most of whom live in small cities and towns. Um, I suppose the definition of a small city in India is probably somewhat different to a small city in Europe. It says most of these users are coming online for the first time. So this is interesting because I would have said that the Indian payment market is quite busy already, particularly if you look at the news that came out of Paytm today, who are raising $2 billion at a valuation of 50 You know, revelry, eat your heart out. <laughs> My point being that it's interesting that that's their chosen market. Or that's the thing that, that jumps out to me is that I don't think India is underserved by, by wallets and digital payment. No, I think there's a little bit of um, people are looking at India as the holy grail of the unbanked and the the underserved banking. And there's so many people that don't have a bank account. And, you know, in India specifically, you know, there's billions. You kind of feel like with this and a few other of the sort of challenges, they're kind of like looking at that market and thinking, you know, the same with uh, sort of WhatsApp payment sort of system and everything else. It's kind of like if we could just find a way of cracking that, then maybe it will work, which is why I think a lot of investments going into these sort of organisations to, to move into that sort of area. Yeah. I think India is fascinating right now for three different reasons, actually. Firstly, it's the real battleground between Silicon Valley and Shenzhen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of whether is it Amazon, is it Ali, is it Facebook, is it WeChat? So there's a real, just on the consumer side, and you've got to think that's really relevant to banking because you know, if 50 years ago you needed to set your bank up on branches on busy streets, well, that's the equivalent. In a virtual world, that's where people are hanging out. So yeah. you have to be in that world if you want to get financial services. Yeah. Secondly, as you're saying, Mark, you've got the unbanked, but you've now got a really rapid growth of whether it's government ID scheme, some of the, the, the payment system. So the mechanisms that would have prevented a lot of the unbanked or banks certainly going into that market are shifting. And then thirdly, you've got this, all this consumer behavior in quite different segments in India between some fairly affluent groups, the rural, the people in the city. So you've got, I think it's about the most interesting market to watch in terms of how this is all happening. Watch is the operative word because I'm loving watching it, but I would not want to be one of these companies that's trying to play out there. Sorry, well, David. And you, you definitely highlighted there too of like sitting in between what's happening in the US and in Europe and what's happening in Asia and what's happening in China. And they definitely highlight in here the idea that they're going to add outside of banking services, but there's train tickets and gas canisters and all this, the idea of this kind of the more Asian-influenced super app that's out there that's Mm -hmm. in there. And so I think that's really interesting because we haven't seen that obviously take off in Europe or the US, but is such a huge part of what Asian fintech is. So having that kind of 
enter into the Indian market and will that take over and will that be successful will be one to watch. And what's interesting is that, that to some of the examples you just highlighted, they're actually very market specific. So buying mm-hmm. digital gold, there is there is a very yeah. strong uh, cultural preference in India for, for holding gold. It, it, it is something that, that's you know been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. So digital gold and book cooking gas cylinders. I mean, that has got to be somebody's gone out there and thought what do people actually need. And presumably, you know, most stoves are still done from gas cylinders. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a phone, but they can't get their delivery on time, you know, it's quite clever to to go after something that are very specific for that specific market rather than just going, we'll give you a mobile payment wallet. We are in India, but largely for mainly the international traveling banking people. And that was sort of the the earlier point. These segments in India, they're very big, but they are really quite different. Absolutely. I'm with you. I think this segment's one that could be really interesting, but We'll watch it from afar. Watch it. <laughs> I think for, from our point of view with the, the FinTech Power 50, we, we're looking at regional variations of our sort of accelerator program in different places. And the ones that always keep coming up is obviously India, China, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, North America. And it's kind of like which one is going to be the most interesting. And, and it needs to get to a certain tipping point, I think, before then the rest of the sort of like professional services and everything will follow in on it at the same time. So I think it's really interesting times at the moment. And I think just to harken back to our previous story, actually, what's really interesting from my perspective is that a lot of the offerings we see in the UK expand quite nicely to Europe and then with a bit of tweaking they go to the US, but they're not that different. But what you see in Brazil compared to what you see in India compared to what you see in Hong Kong are so wonderfully different. I quite enjoy that eclecticism of it, but also it shows you just how different people are culturally when it comes to money. It really is. And then it's it's also interesting to see when you have things that can cross over, when you have things like at a, like Klarna, how that's been able to grow through Europe and even in the U.S. and that kind of model of purchasing and paying later of where they took that model and pushed it. Can these other types of fintech models from Asia and from South America, can those start to become popular in the U.S. or popular in Europe? And we see those proliferate and those great ideas come over. We get that a lot. We get Asian companies who are looking for the next super app, be it mm. uh, outside of or well, inside of financial services, but whose lead industry maybe isn't isn't FS, and they're thinking about whether that model can work in different countries. and And you look about the the regional nuances in some of the countries that they want to launch in, and you're like, yeah, maybe not. But yeah, to your point. Well, yes, we will watch and wait and see with bated breath. So, uh, and finally, this story has been just about everywhere. I have lost track of the number of people who have sent me this story, whether it's via Twitter or email or WhatsApp. So the story is that a man loses his wallet and the person who found it notified him via a series of bank transfer references. So the gentleman in question obviously works in fintech, is the caveat that you need before we, <laughs> before we get into this. And the gentleman in question's name is Tim Cameron. He's a product manager at TransferWise. He lost his wallet on his way home from work. Apparently, there wasn't much in the way of personal identifying information in his wallet, so the person who found it couldn't really get in touch to return it to him. They didn't have a driving license in, all that kind of thing, I think. But what they did was ingenious and required a lot of lateral thinking. I would say, again, unless you're a product manager in a fintech. But they got in touch with him via four separate bank transfers, faster payment transfers. They were instant of 0. 0.0 one pound, that's a penny, citing what had happened in the reference. So the experience has got absolutely viral. Apparently 21,000 retweets and 123,000 likes on Twitter. So let me see if I can read this out. So it says, a faster payment of not point not one pounds was paid into your account. There's a text or call. And then the next one says, with the reference phone number, the actual phone number. The third one says, wallet in the road. And the fourth one says, hi, I found your... Now, they may have come in the wrong order, but you get the message. Um, I mean, it's a 
brilliant story. I think it requires a certain set of circumstances oh. to have come together in the first place. Is this, is this another use for, for faster payment references? Is there subtle messaging I th- going on I think on what's, here? what's hilarious about this is because we're talking about the, you know, PSD2 and PISPs that are coming out in this, this push to have push payments instead of maybe cards or things like that. And you think about the level of detail that you can put in addenda records of push payments. It's nearly completely unusable, especially in a B2B sense. So that's the, the payments geek in me thinking about, yeah, we want to have more push payments. How do you reconcile against this? this? Here, you had to send four different payments to actually have some type of sentence that told what they were about and what they were doing. I mean, it's an ingenious way of trying to return a wall to somebody, but it shows the shortcomings in push payments and trying to get information and use it. Do we know who the guy was who actually pushed the payments? Uh, well, we've got his phone number. <laughs> well, yeah, other than, other than the fact that everyone can call him. <laughs> um, I think it was blocked out on Twitter, in all fairness. Yeah. Um, I think because I, I saw this on um, ITN News last night. and oh, the, Wow, it the, made the news. Yeah, it made the national made, news. Well, uh, regional. Regional, regional. ITN. Oh, sorry. ITN, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> but the guy who actually made the transactions isn't in fintech at all. Oh, he isn't. Okay, no. so the guy who so lost, the guy his, that wallet lost his wallet fintech, is in fintech. Right. But mm. the guy that actually came up with his ingenuity way, you know, ways of contacting him, doesn't actually know anything about what fintech really. Like, I'm they really intrigued now as to was, what kind of we got to get him on the show. To remember, yeah, we'd have to hunt him down. <laughs> we, get him. Him next week. Um, we should get him and Tim Cameron on next week. But <laughs> I would have thought that if they, if they were reporting something about him being in fintech, they would have made a much bigger thing about him working for someone yeah. else. Because for me, I was just thinking, this is an amazing marketing opportunity. Mm-hmm. We should start sending messages to people via payments. That's a great way to get <laughs> recognised. <laughs> I, I, I just, on, on a slightly more sinister note, but also, I remember Venmo allows you to put messages in when you send Venmo payments, and there was an awful lot of uh, news stories earlier this year, maybe it was late last year, about how Venmo was being used by people to make illegal purchases, and the illegal purchases were being discovered by the messages that were being mm. put in the payments. So you would be like, this is for X grams of cocaine. It would be the message that was put <laughs> on it. And nobody realised that, that, that the people running Venmo could see those messages. That's another instance of people using messages attached to payments. And they thought, oh, it's great because nobody's going to track the payment because it's on Venmo. But they were actually explaining in the message attached to the payment what it is they were doing with it. Mm. Sorry, Josh, I don't know if you had no, a serious I was point. Say, no, you, no, I was gonna, you made a sort of rather sinister point. I was going to make a really positive point. How lucky are we all to live in a society where someone loses their wallet and somebody mm. else goes and makes the effort and not only makes the effort but pays 4p yeah. to go and actually tell the person oh, he, they he got found it back because they arranged a meet up in uh, Shoreditch because they both work in Shoreditch on ITN and he gave him back the 4p, 4P. 4P. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say you bought him a drink and I was going to like, oh, bought him a drink as well. Oh, definitely drink as well, worth yeah. it for a drink in Shoreditch well I grew up in South London I always thought Shoreditch was very dangerous but now I'm going to have to reevaluate <laughs> my thinking <laughs> On that note, I'm going to wrap up this week's new show. So thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Josh? Do you have a website, a LinkedIn, a Twitter handle you'd like to share? Uh, I think people can find me quite easily on some of those, yeah. Okay. (laughs) We will leave it at that. David, would you like to be any more specific or equally enigmatic? (laughs) You can find me at uh, David R. McHenry on Twitter and also check out uh, svb.com for Silicon Valley Bank. Perfect. Mark? You can look out for thepower50.com for the website and uh, follow us on Twitter, which is uh, thepower50 on, on Twitter, yeah. Adam? Adam D8 on Twitter and 11fs.com. 
And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. You can also find me on InsureTech Insiders if you want to find out what that earlier reference was about. You can find that on our website. So what do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to watch and share the 11 Years documentary. You can find it at 11years.film and share it using the hashtag 11years. We made the film to celebrate the amazing fintech community in the UK and abroad. And it would mean so, so much to us if you, our community, can get behind it and help us share it with as many people as possible. So that's 11years.film. Watch now. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.